you can start opening to 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, where we're going to be camping out this morning. We're picking up our series that we're doing as we're walking this summer through the life of David. And as I was uh, studying the, this passage of scripture this week, I uh, had an experience shortly um, after I returned one summer from college that sort of came back to mind. I was looking for a job and, and I saw in the paper an ad that said um, a marketing position. And I thought, well, that sounds good. No um, experience necessary. And I thought I fit that bill perfectly. Okay. Um, and so I called them and uh, went into this quote unquote interview and um, was quote unquote hired um, by a company called Cutco. Anybody? To sell knives door to door, essentially, is what it boils down to. Now, this isn't just any knife, I will have you know. This is a double D stainless steel. You never need to sharpen it. It could cut your finger off at any point in time knife, okay? Now, uh, so I would, I, for the first week, I was, I was like guns blazing. I don't, anybody else there had ever done this? No, you're just too embarrassing. Okay, good. Okay, um, so we got a few, and I'm sure some people have made great money doing this. I did for a week, and then um, <clears throat> I was out, but I, I, for a week, I was guns blazing. I set up appointments with all of my parents' friends to go and show them just um, how bad their knives stunk and how amazing my knives were, um, and I sold on every single appointment, and I got this check for like um, $3.25, and I thought, I don't know if this is the direction that the Lord is leading me to give my life to. And around that same time, my family had gone out to dinner at Outback Steakhouse, and I was at Outback, and I looked at their knife, and I thought, my knife, my double D stainless steel, never has to be sharp, a knife is far superior to the Outback Steakhouse knife. Yours may have a wooden handle, but mine can actually cut the steak that you gave me. And so I decided that being the bold teenager that I was, that I was going to set up an appointment with the manager of Outback on Arapahoe Road and just tell him how bad his knives stunk and how amazing my knives were. Now, I walked into this meeting thinking I'm going to walk out being one of the richest 19-year-olds that has ever walked the face of the planet because Outback Steakhouse is now going to be using Cutco knives and I'm going to be their broker. Now, I walked in thinking that and I walked out with my tail between my legs in about five minutes time. They didn't even offer me any food, which I thought at least in the least they'll offer me a piece of steak. No, they didn't even do that. Now, I walked out having been rejected because he said, son, um, we are... A corporation, you may have noticed, there's more than one outback in the world. And we get all of our knives from one supplier, and you are not it, and you will never be it. <clears throat> and I thought, okay. So I walked in thinking, all right, I'm going to walk out with a, a pocket full of money. Naive, yes. Yes, I was. But driven. Naive. <clears throat> and I walked out feeling like the biggest idiot ever. They didn't send me a rejection letter, but if they did, uh, my guess is it would have read something similar to this real rejection letter that the New Delta Review, a literary magazine, sent um, a little while ago to a person that submitted a story to be published. They said this, thank you for submitting. Unfortunately, the work you sent is quite terrible. Please forgive the form rejection. It would take too much of my time to tell you exactly how terrible it was. So sorry for the form letter. I don't know the person that got that, but I, I imagine they felt similar to the way that I felt. Uh, and, and I don't know if you've ever been there before, just completely rejected on your back, not knowing which way to turn. And we're going to look at David this morning when he comes out of a season of that type of rejection. And I want to submit to you that I think one of the things that makes David a great king, and for the most part, he was a great king. 
was the fact that he spent many, many years living in the in-between, in the rejection, in the, in the promise being given, but the, the culmination of the promise not being attained yet. See, I think, I think the best leaders you know, I think the best influencers you know, are people who God shapes through brokenness before he elevates to places of prominence. I think the best leaders you know, the people of influence you know that you respect most are people who God shapes through brokenness before he elevates to places of prominence. And so that's the big idea that we're going to wrap our hearts and our minds around this morning is that influence, especially kingdom influence, but influence in general typically flows through people who have been shaped, who have been chiseled, who have been made through brokenness, through seasons of life that didn't go the way that they hoped that they would, and the way that they saw them in their head, they didn't turn out that way, that God uses those people maybe more so than he uses people who have an easy path to the throne, quote-unquote, as it were, for David. Um, Paul makes the same point when he says this uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians. He writes... But we have this treasure, and he's talking about the gospel and and being a a carrier of this great gospel, the the message that, that Jesus is redeeming humanity. We have this treasure in jars of clay. That'd be a good name for a band. Anyway, um, in jars of clay where like they just chipped and, and formed and made. That's how we carry the goodness, the goodness of the gospel to show that this all surpassing power. So why does God carry the gospel in jars of clay? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. See, God often elevates people to places of influence that he's first shaped in moments of brokenness. That he's first shaped in moments of brokenness. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather fast forward and skip through if it were a scene on a DVD. I'd much rather get through those seasons of brokenness quickly and get to the to elevated season of influence. <laughs> But that's just not the way that God often works, is it? See, everybody that's lived more than two decades went, no, it's not. (laughs) It's not. And I don't know about you, but I want to be somebody that can steward the blessing of God well. But that's hard, isn't it? Because I think the thing that is, is more apt to crush most people is success, not failure. I think this success out of time when we don't have the capacity in our character to handle it, that has way more of an ability to crush us than adversity. Listen to the way that the poet Thomas Carlyle put it when he said this. Adversity is sometimes hard upon a man. But for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. His point is, listen, adversity, blessing can crush you just as easy as easily as adversity. And see what God does in times of testing and shaping and making and molding is he widens our shoulders to be able to carry the blessing of God well. And the elevation to be elevated too quickly puts us in a position where we have more power, more money, more authority than we can actually handle. And it's not a good thing for us. I mean, you've seen child stars. There's been a few of them that have gone off the deep end, right? I mean, a few. Like 99%. Could it be because they, they had something before they were able to steward it and use it well? You see, here's the deal. God cares about you way too much to put you in a position of influence before you're able to steward it well. So he'll shape you. So he'll make you. 
So he'll mold you into types of people that can handle the goodness and blessing he brings you before he brings it. And that is David's life. That is David's story in many ways. I mean, as a kid, he's anointed as the next king of Israel. And then he just waits for a really, really long time. And in that waiting, God doesn't leave him alone, but God is good to him. And he shapes him and he molds him. And some of the areas of David's life that need to be removed so that he can be a good king are removed. And then he's put into the position. You see... God will break you and make you and mold you before he will give you positions of authority and influence because he loves you way too much to see you crushed under the weight of something that you can't handle, that I can't handle. So we're going to jump into 2 Samuel chapter 5, and we're actually going to look this morning at finally when David is anointed the king of Israel. Now let me briefly catch you up in the story of where we're jumping in because we skipped a few chapters in between last week and this week. In between last week and this week, um, Saul, who was the current king of Israel, dies. And Ishbosheth, will you say that with me? Ishbosheth, yeah, that's a fun one to say. I've been wrestling with it all week, is one of Saul's sons who's elevated to the place of king. Now, Ishbosheth, <clears throat> anybody looking, anybody pregnant looking for baby names? Just to throw Ishbosheth out there. Just go for, by Ish for short. Anyway, okay. If I could get a footnote in that, you know, in your baby name, that'd be awesome. Okay. So Ishbosheth is the king of the, uh, of the northern part of Israel. So Israel's divided into north and south at this point, and David becomes king of the south. Now, to, to, to free you from a long story, Ishbosheth is eventually killed by some of his very own men who bring the head of Ishbosheth to David and say, Hey, David, now would be a good time for you to become king. Now, after David kills the guys that bring him Ishbosheth's head, he goes, You know what? You're probably right. Maybe it is. Okay? So that's where we pick up the story. For 2 Samuel chapter 5, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Can you guys skip to those passages? For some reason, my clicker's not working. It says this in verse, chapter 5, verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us, led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. And when all the elders of Israel come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. And I love these next two verses because as I've tried to piece together and teach through the life of David well, one of the more frustrating parts is trying to develop a timeline that actually lets us walk through his life because it'll, in a paragraph, sort of summarize a decade. And so the author here gives us a little bit of a hint of just how long David's reign was and how long David reigned the south alone before he reigned all of Israel, over all of Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned 40 years. It's a long time. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. So that's all included in this 40 years, as we'll see. So seven and a half years in the south alone. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, let me just sort of point out big picture life of David. David is anointed king of Israel somewhere between the age of 10 and 12, maybe 13 at latest. 
So Samuel, the prophet of Israel, comes to this kid, anoints him as the next king of Israel. Now, at the age of 30, he's finally the king over Hebron. And at the age of 37, he's finally the king over all of Israel. So if you do the math, it's somewhere around 25 years in between the time that David is anointed king and the time when David actually takes the throne. That's a long time. That's a lot of waiting. Why didn't God just sort of fast forward and, hey, he anoints him king and then he becomes king? See, here's the deal. I think God loves David way too much to allow him to be king before he's able to handle the responsibility. And hey, he handled it okay for the most part, but he had a few blunders, a few mistakes. You may, if you've read through his life, you may recognize, remember some of those and we'll walk through them. But for the most part, David was a great king. The question is why? I think the, I think the answer to the question why is because David spent about 10 years on the run in the desert running from Saul. David spent years in the court of Saul. And David spent seven and a half years in Hebron before he ever took the throne of the nation of Israel as a whole. And you see, here's a question I think that God asked David throughout this whole time of waiting is, will you be faithful in the in-between while I lead you to the promise? Will you be faithful in the in-between while I lead you to the promise? I love this. Eugene Peterson writes this as he describes waiting as poised submissiveness. It's not doing. It's a not doing that leaves adequate space and time for God to initiate actions through others. It's saying to God, God, I'm willing to be shaped and I'm willing to wait and I'm willing to be faithful right now while you build my confidence and while you instill in me humility that will carry me to be a person that can influence for your kingdom when you do eventually elevate. And I don't know about you, but I want to be the type of person that uses whatever influence God gives me well. And, and the reality is, is that God has given you some influence probably. You may not know it. It may be, it may be influence at your job that you're just simply not aware of. It may be a position where you're overseeing other staff at your workplace. It may be your family where people are looking to you for answers and to lead. It may be in your neighborhood. But here's the deal. Here's how we have influence and, and influence well. <laughs> this is what we see in the life of David. He remains faithful in the small. While he dreams of the big. He remains faithful in the small while he dreams of the big. Here's how I started to look at it as I studied this week. Is that David is faithful in Hebron for seven and a half years. He leads well. He develops the skills that he needs in order to step into the promise that God has for him. But he leads well in Hebron before he ever sets sight on Jerusalem. He leads well in Hebron before he ever sets sight in Jerusalem. So... I pray for you weekly. The, the little prayer request that you send in, I, I pray, for, pray for you. And I know that there's a lot of you that are, that are overqualified for the position that you have. I know that there's a lot of you that are waiting for employment. And I think what David asks us in this passage is, will we be the kind of people that while we may not be where we want to be, we'll be faithful where we are. Will we be the type of people who will be faithful in the present and not lose sight of what God has eventually is eventually leading us to in the future? But right now, 
Be the type of people that are faithful wherever we are in the painful situations and the beautiful situations. We keep it, we're keeping our eyes on him. See, David understands that he's not where he's going, but that he is exactly where God wants him to be. And so he says, I'll be, I'll be faithful. I love the way that Jesus challenges us in this as well. He says this in Luke 16, verse 10. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little, whoever can be trusted with Hebron can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very, with much. Sorry. And David waits patiently and David is shaped and David is formed. And here's the truth of the matter, friends. Will you look up at me for just a second? God is calling you to be faithful wherever you are right now, wherever you are. And it may not be where your destination ends, but his question to us is, will we be faithful in Hebron and trust that eventually he'll lead us to Jerusalem? That's what he does with David. And that's what he does with us. You work in a job that you just, you hate, you're done with. I mean, how easy would it have been for David to say, hey, bring everybody to me instead of waiting for them to come to him. Hey, bring everybody to me because it's time for me to be king. But David intentionally waits and God shapes him and God forms him and then God uses him. And then God uses him. I think as a church, God's calling us to be faithful right now while we dream of what he might do in the future. It's exactly the way that David lived. And you and I are called to live in the same way. Let me point out verse 2 to you because we sort of flew right past it. It says this, In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel in their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, so they're talking about what God spoke over the ministry and life of David. God spoke over you. You will shepherd my people Israel and you will be their ruler. It's the first place in scripture that we have a shepherd also become a king. And it was a complete antithesis. To be a, a shepherd king was very different than the way that most kings ruled and reigned in the time. I mean, you can go back and you can read 1 Samuel chapter 8, and it talks about Saul's reign. And Saul is all about taking, all about getting, all about what he's going to receive. And it's about the building of Saul's kingdom. But when they refer to David, you will shepherd my people. You're going to be the, the shepherd king. This is a very different kind of ruling. This is the kind of ruling that's going to say, I'm going to be for my people instead of about getting something from my people. This is the type of ruler that says, I'm going to build the kingdom before I build my name. This is the kind of person who's committed to caring for people rather than using people. Who's committed to caring for people instead of using people. And I think it's David's years in the desert, his years of shaping, his years of wandering, his years of wondering that allow them to say about him, he's the shepherd king, the one that they had waited for. Look at the way that Psalm chapter 78 talks about the coming of David. It says, he, God, choose, chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them, shepherded them with an integrity 
of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. You see, the shepherd wants to care for his people. The shepherd wants to build his people. The shepherd wants to tend his people. The typical king wanted to build his name, wanted to use people, and wanted to have people give to him. This is a complete reversal of roles. And you see, the person that gets influenced before they're ready for it thinks it's about them. But the shepherd king realizes this isn't about me. This is about God. This is about your kingdom and your influence. Um, Jim Collins, one of the great researchers of our time in the area of leadership, has been studying leadership for the past decades. And one of the interesting discoveries that he stumbled across early on um, in, in his work was something he said he wasn't expecting. And of the great, all the great qualities that you can think of as leaders, one of the things that he isolated about what he calls five-star leaders, leaders who, who lead well, who people want to follow, um, one of the things he isolated that was a surprise to him was that all these five-star leaders have one thing in common, and that's humility. They understand that this isn't about them, but that this is about the greater good of all people. See, humility, and we've talked about this before, but it isn't thinking, it isn't thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. And David's the shepherd king, and he says, I am for my people. And he's really, he's really a forerunner to the good shepherd that was to come. I mean, you look at these verses that talk about Jesus, where Jesus talks about himself here. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, we've heard this a lot. But for God to come down and clothe himself in humanity and now to say, I'm going to shepherd my people. I'm going to care for my people. I'm going to build into my people and eventually lay down my life for my people. That's crazy. Mark chapter 4, verse 4, sorry, chapter 10, verse 45 says this. For even the Son of Man, and that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So friends, what are we doing with the leadership, with the influence that God's given us? In your families, what are you doing with it? In your neighborhoods, what are you doing with it? In your workplaces, are you caring for people? Or are we using people? to build our name and to build our platform and to help further our whatever. And see, this is a sort of a side note. But the reason that that's so important, the little slip that's in your bulletin today, where we say, hey, we are, we're looking for new elders, that we have two open spots on the elder board, that we are praying that God would raise up the right men to lead here. The reason that's so important is because we're looking for people who are willing to lay down their life for you. For you to say to God, God, I believe that you've called me here and I want to serve here and I want to lead here well, not to build the platform of my name or even of this church. Hear me on that. We're not about building this church. We're about building the kingdom. And we don't want to use people to do that. We want to empower people to use their gifts and to walk with Jesus and to love him well. We're looking for shepherd leaders. Because that's what scripture commands us to look for. I mean, here's the way Peter says it to the church. When he writes this, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, 
a witness of Christ's suffering and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock. Care for them, tend to them, build them up, feed them. That is under your care, serving as overseers, serving Not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So pray for us, please. Pray for us. Because our desire as we lead here is, is not to lead in a way that builds anything other than the name of Jesus. To shepherd. Well, let's... 2 Samuel chapter 5 continues in verse 6. And the king and his men, so right after David is anointed king, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. Just a quick time out. The Jebusites hadn't been in a war in a really long time. Jerusalem was a walled, fortified city sort of up on top of a hill. And so nobody was really willing to attack them, especially when there was other people to fight. I mean, it was just sort of sport back then. And so the Israelites and the Amalekites and the Philistines, they brawled all the time. And then there was this little spot right in the middle where there was sort of safety. But the Jebusites weren't a holy people. They were extremely evil. I mean, they were sort of the epicenter of demonic activity back then. And it says, and he, the Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and lame can ward you off. And they thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. This is the first time um, that, Israel, that Jerusalem is referred to as Zion in our scriptures. And on that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft. That shaft, that's sort of how David got in. Because it was a walled city, there was a way that water got in and out of the city. And so evidently, his men climbed up the water shaft to reach those lame and blind. So he sort of turned the metaphor on them, who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. Now, he's not saying anything there about disabilities. I mean, you can fast forward a few chapters to chapter 9 when David welcomes Meshibbeth. Man, that's going to be a fun week. You don't want to miss that one. (laughs) To have dinner at his table. What he does is he turns this analogy back on them. It says, verse 9, Then David took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting trenches inward. I mean, this was a city of of peace in many ways before David got there. It's literally what the word Jerusalem means. Jeru city, Salem, peace. But David knows that he's anointed king of Israel, not king of the south part of Israel. Let me show you something about Jerusalem. Let me show you something about Jerusalem. See, uh, here is, uh, oh, whoops, sorry. Will you give that back to that map? I apologize, I hit the wrong button. Can't trust me with technology. There we go. The clicker with three buttons is technology now. Okay, um, here's Hebron where David was located, where he was king of the south part of Israel. Here's Manahem, which is where Ishbosheth had his palace and reigned the northern part of the kingdom. And so what David does As he's becoming king, he realizes, I can't be the king of all of Israel if I'm only the king of the south part of Israel. 
So I can't stay where I'm at, where I am. And I can't go up to Manahem and be the king where Ishbosheth ruled. And I have to have a new place. And so what he does is he picks a place that's strategically located right in the middle of where he wants to reign and where he wants to rule. And David's desire is, hey, I don't want to be a king that oversees a nation, that rules a nation that's constantly fighting with itself. What I want to do is I want to reign over a nation that's unified so that it can fight against its actual enemies rather than itself. So what he does is he moves the center point of the kingdom to the center point of the kingdom. That's what he does. And he makes Jerusalem the place where he has his palace, the place where he reigns, and the place where he rules. Why? Why does he do that? Because people who use their influence well that God gives them bring people together. They don't tear them apart. That's what God does through David. He unifies this kingdom. Here's what David understands. If we're fighting against each other, we will never be able to fight against the real enemy. Man, don't you wish that the Bible were applicable? I mean, here, I'll just, if, if we're divided amongst ourselves, we can spend a lot of time fighting against each other and we forget that there's a world that's perishing out there. And I love South because I don't think that's really part of our DNA, but for some churches, fighting is sort of a sport. And if we can occupy ourselves and feel busy, then we're okay. And we forget that, man, there's a world that needs to see the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And so God's going to constantly say, come on, I, I don't want you to be divided. I don't want you to be fighting against each other. There's a bigger, better fight to happen. This isn't the one that you need to fight here. You need to fight for unity here so that we can be unified in the way that we love the world around us. You can spend a lot of energy wasted. And, and so that's why scripture is going to constantly point us back to the reality that fighting for unity is a fight worth happening. It's a fight worth engaging in. Listen to the way that Paul writes to the Corinthian church. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another. That's tough, isn't it? I mean, that's going to be the laying down of some of my desires for the greater good. So that there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. He picks it up again. See, it's almost as though he knows that division is going to be our natural bent. And so the Bible is going to push back against that time and time again. Don't be divided. Be united. I know that's where you're drifting. Division is where you're drifting. But I want to push you back to being united. I urge you, brothers, he says in Romans 16, verse 17, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way. Notice, division is equated with obstacle. It prevents you from getting where you really want to go. That are contrary to the way of teaching that you've learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They're out to build themselves up. See, here's the reality about unity. There's almost always opposition to it. Almost always opposition to it. Because our natural bent is to move away from it. I mean, you look at David. The opposition to his unity were the Jebusites. Well, I'll ask, I'll put it back on you. What's the opposition to yours? What's the opposition to unity in your families? What's the opposition to unity in, the, in, in your workplace? What's the opposition to unity in your neighborhood? 
Because I think people want to, at our core, we, we, we push back against it in our nature, but we long to be united with other people. I think one of the greatest oppositions to unity in our day and time is time. We're so busy that it's hard to be united with anybody other than maybe the people who we live under a roof with. Even then, we stand in the way of that much of the time. So, I mean, like, what would it look like to fight for unity? What would it look like for us to become a church where people really love their neighborhoods and want to see unity in their neighborhoods? Not just in, in the church, but we say, this is such a great piece of what it means to be a follower of Christ that we don't want it to be limited to the church alone. But what if we started being a church that, like, that threw parties in our neighborhoods to try to get people united with each other? To get people to come together. I had a friend that came and visited me um, just this last week, moving uh, away from San Francisco. And he said, you know what I've realized? Is that everybody that I'm surrounded with wants to get together with other people and very few people will ever initiate getting together. And I thought, man, that is so true. What if we started to say, you know what? Unity is a fight that we're willing to fight. Even in times and situations where it seems insurmountable. I mean, that's David's life. That's, this, that's the reality of Jerusalem. It seems like it is insurmountable. But he says that's a fight that I'm willing to engage in. It goes on. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Do you love that? David didn't become more powerful because he had a great plan. David didn't become more powerful because he was a great leader. David did not become more powerful because of the people that he was surrounded with. But what the scriptures say is that he became more powerful. Why? Because God was with him. And David knows this. David knows that he's not the smartest, the most powerful, the most influential person in and of himself. But he knows he's capable when God is with him. It says, and now the king... Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. I mean, that's when you know you're powerful, is when your enemies are going, hey, can we build you a house or something? That'd be all right? You want us to take it from there, David? I see you're exhausted, so I know we were fighting with you, but we're now going to come build your palace. Are you cool with that? And David's like, sure. And David knew Here's the deal. Circle this verse, underline this verse, star this verse, highlight it, whatever you do in your Bible. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. Isn't that beautiful? David finally, after walking through years, decades of hurt, after walking through decades of wondering and questioning, and some of you may be in that spot this morning, where you're, that's the season of life that you're in. But remember, God will often lead you through seasons of brokenness before he leads you to places of influence. So if you're in a season of brokenness right now, ask him, what are you teaching me? What do you want me to learn in this? How are you shaping and forming my character so that someday you'll use me for your kingdom and for your glory in a way that I can't even imagine right now? But here's what David says. I get it, God. I get it that the places you led me through in the decade wandering around in the desert, in the times of getting spears thrown at me in the kingdom of Saul, in the palace of Saul, those awkward dinner parties. 
God, in the seven and a half years in Hebron where I knew it wasn't all you had for me, but I knew it was what you had for me then. And it finally culminates. He's king over Israel. And David knew that God had established him as king over Israel. He'd exalted his kingdom. Catch this, for the sake of his people. See, God will never lead you to a place of influence for you alone. God will never lead you to a place of influence for you alone. And as leaders that have, and people that have come through situations of brokenness, of hard times, that they, they get that. They understand that God will elevate you so that you can be a blessing to other people. See, you're called, whatever God has given you, whether it's finances or whether it's having a mind that's really smart or or whether it's being able to communicate well, whatever it is, whatever God's given you in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, whatever he's giving you, he has not given for you alone. His blessings are never called to terminate on you. They're called to move through you to the people that you interact with on a daily basis. And see, David gets that. And it's only through brokenness that David gets that. And he understands this isn't about building my name. This is God is about building your kingdom. This isn't about you blessing me. This is about the question, who can I be a blessing to? As I lead and as I have influence, who can I be a blessing to? And it's not what can I get, but it's what can I give? That David, the question that David wrestles with. And hey, you're called to wrestle with it too. Listen to the way that Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. God is able to make all grace, all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God says, I'm going to free you by providing for you so that you can freely give to other people. That's what he says. You will be made rich, verse 11. You will be made rich in every way. Why? So that you can enjoy it? Well, partially. So that you can hog it? Definitely not. So that you can be generous on every occasion is what he says. So that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. I think David gets that. I think David gets that as he's blessed and becomes a blessing, that God gets the glory and that God gets the praise. And then it's God's renown and his name and his kingdom that's built, not David's alone. So the question is, with whatever God has given you, in whatever place you find yourself, what are you doing with that stuff? Is it possible that God didn't give you the great house just for you to have the great house? Is it possible that God didn't give you the great job just so that you can have the great job? Is it possible that God didn't give you your kids just so that you'd have kids? But that he might be a blessing to them? In our marriages, what does it look like to to live with this DNA? God, as as I receive from you, I, I give this out to the family that you've blessed me with? See, David understands that blessing runs through him, but it doesn't terminate on him. It doesn't terminate on him. And I think it needs to be a DNA piece of what the way we see being a follower of Christ. Why? Because who's, who's more blessed than God? And who has more than God? And, and if I were God, here's what I'd say. Serve me. Come on, give to me. 
Tell me how, tell me how great I am. Do you know that the scriptures say, though, that he didn't come to be served, but to serve? That this God who has everything you see around you leaves it all. The scriptures say that Jesus clothes himself. He emptied himself of all that it meant to be God. He clothed himself in humanity and he walked among us as a person. And through the brokenness of his own body shows us what it means to have influence through brokenness, through giving of ourselves. You see, the beautiful thing about God, the beautiful thing about our heavenly father is that he knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly who he is. And in knowing who he is, it frees him to not need anything from anyone else. In fact, the book of Acts says he doesn't need anything. He made it all. See, some of the best news you should hear all morning is that God needs nothing from you. He needs nothing from you. And why is that good news? It means that if he needs nothing from you, then every command that he has is so that he can give something to you rather than get something back from you. Because he needs nothing. He needs nothing. And so his knowledge of the fact that everything is his allows him to say, and so now I can freely give because I don't need to get anything else. Let me tell you what God does to you and I through brokenness. Through brokenness, what God does is he shapes and he molds our character by telling us the same thing. You need nothing else except the blood and the presence and the person of Jesus. You see, I think in the cold nights in the desert, As David was wondering, he was also stooped in the fact, he was astounded at the fact that he was, although empty, completely filled. And although he had nothing to his name, he still had everything. And that it's in those seasons of brokenness where he knew God was his sufficiency and that God was enough for him. And so as he knows that at his lowest point, David also knows it at his highest point. But see, at his highest point, he has other stuff that he can cling on to, but he doesn't. He gives it away. He offers it away because he's completely satisfied in who Jesus is. Isn't that a beautiful picture? See, the brokenness showed him God is enough for him. And as he stepped into a place of influence, he stepped into it knowing the truth that God is enough. And therefore, I'm free to give. I can be faithful in the small because I'm not defined by how big the city is that I rule. I can bring people together instead of divide them. I can shepherd my people instead of ruling hardly over them. And I can be a blessing to those around me because I don't need to hog the blessing for myself because my God is sufficient for me. And my hope and my prayer is that Jesus would affirm his sufficiency for you, that you might be freed to really truly love and to walk with and shepherd and lead and build into the people around you well. Because the world needs to see it. They need to know it. And friends, you are called to deliver the message. And I pray that wherever we have influence and whatever influence we have, it would be used to make his name great and his name more powerful and his renown more known.
Would you stand with me as we close our time together today in prayer?